0: This old-time radio program was originally aired live, long before the advent of high fidelity. As a result, you may detect an occasional surface noise or volume drop due to transmission problems so common to old radio. It's good to see you again. What's happening, hot stuff?
1: I want my
0: MTV! <laughs> You'll get nothing and like it, Bueller... They are. You are the daddy.
2: How come Andrew gets to get up? That's If he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy.
1: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Gnarly.
0: Live from Members Only Studios, welcome to Living in the 80s the podcast where we talk about anything and everything having to do with the 1980s the best that we remember. This week, we are going to celebrate what is certainly one of the biggest single days of the 1980s. I'm talking about July 13th, 1985, the day of Live Aid. The podcast you're about to listen to is one that was recorded in 2020 by by special guest Tim Clue and myself, and we're gonna talk all about Live Aid. I have taken the podcast and cut it down some, so it is not as long as the original, which, by the way, can be found in its entirety. That would be episode 22, so be sure to check that out if you want the extended version of this podcast. So, without further ado, let's go back in the DeLorean to the year 2020, I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome once again to Members Only Studios. I'm Rob and welcome to Living in the 80s. This week I've got a very special guest on a very special occasion. I have Timothy Clue with me here. This week is the 40th anniversary of LiveAid. Like you guys come to expect around here, I only bring in the heavy hitters, the big guns, the knowledgeable people on the subject. So welcome to the show, Timothy.
2: Well, uh, thank you for thanking so, and thank you for bringing me in. I know that I love the event Live Aid very much, big fan right from the beginning, and so I'm glad that you brought me in to talk about it.
0: As we mentioned before, Live Aid was uh, July 13th, 1985, what well, we thought was would be a good thing is if we came up with, you know me, we have a top 10 list. So we're going to do a list of our 10 most memorable Live Aid moments. And within those moments, other moments are going to come out. Without further ado, let's get into our top 10.
1: Number Number 10.
0: 10. So before we get into number 10, we originally had a number 10, which was Status Quo, uh, opening Live Aid with their song Rockin' All Over the World. The only reason that would have been in our top ten is because it was the opening. It's about noon in England, 7 a.m. in the U.S., and they have this band open. I didn't think it was particularly great, but it kicked off, so just for the experience alone was good for me. So the actual number ten that we went with here is the Who's performance.
2: Yes, The Who's performance was um, very eventful for the band, especially this being their uh, reunion. Uh, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and The Who were all doing their reunions for, uh, for it, mostly because Bob Geldof said, um, if you guys are deciding not to do uh, Live Aid, um, think about what Live Aid's doing, and then thinking of think to yourself, why aren't you doing it? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of bands came on board. Pete Townsend was reluctant to uh, to step on board, but he said that Bob Geldof basically um, caught him up. And um, uh, as close as I can quote it, he says, Bob Geldof told him, if The Who appears, we know we will get an additional million pounds of revenue. And he said that that, that was enough to make him go in. But as soon as The Who got their chance to perform, which they uh, performed there, said, um that's uh, 759 in britain and 259 over here in america the satellite feed went out yes and it was
0: during my generation
2: the world lost two songs uh, uh two songs of the of them performing it was a uh, my generation followed by pinball wizard and finally people uh the the world was able to come back in to uh see their performance of of love reign over me and um and Won't Get Fooled Again. Now, during Won't Get Fooled Again, Fortunately, Roger Daughtry had not really got to go over the material much, and he kind of drops out in the middle of the song, starts looking at the drummer, and so we get a bit of instrumental for Won't Get Fooled Again. But because of all those things that kind of happened to The Who, the 20-minute light turns on, telling them you got to stop right in the middle of Won't Get Fooled Again. So Pete Townsend, in Pete Townsend's style, takes his boot and smashes the red light. Nice. And then...
0: Now, I didn't know that.
2: <laughs> he, puts on, he puts on an extended ending to the song as well. Just to, He's like, you're going to really nose shut nose down nose. the who?
0: Yeah. <laughs> there are little things like that sprinkled throughout, which one of the things that really, because I was a fan of this guy, kind of... I mm, don't say... Yeah, it brought me the wrong way. It's adamant. Oh yeah! Again, early MTV. I'd heard of Adam and the Ants, short probably a year or so before MTV came out, but never really heard any of their music. Had no access to it. The radio stations weren't playing it. There was no place to see this stuff. So MTV comes out. I'm introduced to Adam and the Ants, and just absolutely loved them. So Adam Ant goes solo. He does his uh, his solo album came out in late eighty, probably mid eighty three and he was becoming pretty big here in the states and uh you know with goody two shoes and then the strip album came out after that he was a pretty decent star and when live aid first was a concept bob Geldof went to Adam Ant and asked him to play and Adam Ant was not really overly excited about it and uh the the way it was po- positioned to him was I don't know how many people I can get, and I got to have somebody that that is going to draw some people in. So he agreed to do it. So the funny twist was, by the time that the concert was about to happen, we've got a Led Zeppelin reunion, we've got a Who reunion, yeah. we've got you know U two is there, you know, there's all of these huge bands, and Adam Ant is not. He becomes more of an afterthought, and so they were going to pull him. And the record label said, well, if you pull Adam Ant, then you don't get Sting either. Uh, and so they so. they let him go out. He does one song, which is Viva La Rock. He did a great job. But that was it. Like, a lot of these guys got two to three songs. He got one. And he was kind of, you know, he was a little miffed by that because of, you know, the way it was presented. And he has a new album coming out. Right. It's like people could have... If he had stuck around, maybe done stand and deliver or goody two shoes or some of these other songs people also knew, that would kind of help him. Uh, but it, you know, it, it's kind of like he put his nose in it a little bit, and uh, he was, you know, out of man. Even today, uh, I saw an interview uh, a couple months ago, and he was talking about how he felt like he had gotten the shaft at Live Aid, and. Again, you're looking at some of the bands that were there. I'm looking at <coughs> Status Quo, The Style Council, Boomtown Rats. None of these guys really had sold any records in the U.S. You would know a couple of them from MTV. Ultravox is another one. These, these are bands that, you know, Nick Kershaw, that people didn't really know that well. And Adamant is the one performer in the first four hours of the day that we'd ever even heard of. <laughs> so, like, the the one guy that you could maybe draw some people in for, he didn't use. So, anyhow, I digress.
2: I wonder if Kenny Loggins also got the same deal, because he only got the chance to do Footloose.
0: Yeah, which was, at that point, Footloose was a big, big hit the summer before. So, in 1984, it's a big hit. By 1985... It had been played out. and yeah, like He didn't have any new music then. Why you got Kenny Loggins there? Huh. Why don't you just go ahead and let him do "I'm All Right"? Yeah, or you know one of these other songs. Time
2: constraints. Uh, David Bowie had to give up a song, I think, uh, to allow a video to be played. Dancing
0: in the Street. That video debuted that day. Funny
2: story about the video: they uh, they had complimented it, saying it only took a couple hours to make, but it would later be uh, criticized by people who said it looks like it only took a couple hours to make. Do we have anything else on the Who? No. Basically, uh, that was the uh, the presentation. There was a there was a lot of great performances, and there was a lot of little trip ups. Remember that this was the first time something of this size was was being done. A lot of things to go wrong. Yes. If you remember, Paul McCartney's uh, vocal audio got cut um, during the song, Let It Be. Yes. I mean, this... um, Which
0: was supposed to be a monumental time. Paul McCartney is British royalty. Right, right. and Sir, Paul McCartney. Yeah, exactly. And Let (laughs) It Be is an iconic Beatles song and is strategically put at this moment of the show.
2: Perfect time for fate.
0: Exactly. I know Duran Duran had some problems with their set. Yes. Uh, I guess the in air monitors were kind of messed up, and uh, you know there's some things. with the And guitar we got a pitchy and, performance. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot of little things happen like that. All right. So that was uh, number our number ten moment, and we're we're going strong here. That was the who. Number nine. Our number nine moment: Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. two icons to me that was a huge moment now what i remember is mick wanting to sex up the performance a little bit yes and tina wasn't having any of it like i don't want you and yourself all slithering on me and so a lot of the performance is her kind of getting away from him was legit
2: (laughs) all you had to do was watch
0: Yes, And every thought,
2: everything, you you kind of knew what was going on. He began to strip his outfit before Tina Turner came out. During the uh, first couple songs he did, he would, he lost the uh, blue jacket he was wearing, and then he uh, took off the uh, yellow overshirt, turned it like a helicopter over his head and flung it to the stage. Yeah. So he was already down to his purple pants Light purple pants, excuse me, yeah, and blue t shirt. When which you could only Fortuna. wear in the 80s, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, you uh, him and Don Johnson,
0: yeah, that's right.
2: <laughs> but um, uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, when she came out and they were they got through the 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 first song, State of Shock, um, and then they uh, they were um, going, um, it's only rock and roll, mm-hmm. and as they were doing that, he um, he actually took her body uh he took her by the waist and thrust her up against him real quick, yeah, and you could see the initial reaction of her, and
0: you were like, Tina didn't know that was coming, yeah, and, and um she she played along, but you could tell she was uncomfortable and kind of get off of me, yeah, well
2: we'll perform from ten feet away yeah. And uh, social
0: distancing before it was a there, fair. you go.
2: And he uh, he took off the blue t shirt and he came up close on her, and uh, that is what sent her. And, and I'll say, she didn't move off stage, she performed off stage. Yes, and uh, it became clear that uh, when they gave him the yellow overshirt again, that he had been asked to put it back on. Yeah, and so I think that with the ego that Mick Jagger had. When she came back on, and he uh, he got close to her again. He just ripped the skirt right off her and said, "I can take this to another level."
0: Yeah. <laughs> what a dummy!
2: <laughs> I wonder what the band thought. I mean, the Daryl Hall and John Oates orchestra playing behind them. I wonder yeah. like, is every Rolling Stone concert like this? <laughs> yeah. Daryl and John
0: don't do this. <laughs> again, things that stick out of the day that that really sticks out for me. So.
2: Tina Turner wouldn't talk about it for years. In fact, she wrote a book recently, and I believe she addresses it there, but I unfortunately don't know what she had to say.
0: So here's a question I have for you. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Maybe I used to know this and forgot. But Mick is singing with Tina Turner. They sing State of Shock, which is a big hit for Mick Jagger with the Jacksons. Mm -hmm. Well, let's face it, Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson. Yes. So Michael Jackson, biggest star on the planet in 1985. Like, he, you know, he was still up there. Like Iconic. Thriller, the, the Jackson's Victory Tour, the whole thing. <clears throat> so, do you know why Michael Jackson was not involved with Live Aid? I,
2: I, I still don't know the details of that, but I also know that Prince was not there as well. He did make a video that would be released later doing the same type of message. Long ago, there
1: was a man.
2: No, I actually do not know why why he wasn't there, unless his uh, unless his tour kept them from it.
0: I, I can't I can't imagine why. Again, uh, even though he didn't have a Mick Jagger type ego, still he never shied away from the spotlight. Yeah. Whenever there was a chance to exploit his brand or whatever, he was never ashamed of it. So I was, you know, I kind of I wonder myself, what happened? Why wasn't he there? But uh, maybe we will find out someday.
2: Well, he got to sing every chorus of uh, of uh, We Are the World. So. Yes,
0: he did. Which, you know, eh, I liked We Are the World as a song, but uh, there was a little too much Michael in it. You can thank Quincy for that. Yeah, my (coughs) all-time favorite vocalist, period, is Steve Perry. Like, he gets a blurb. Yeah. Like, why does Steve Perry get a blurb? And we hear Michael on and on and on. We hear a lot of Bruce. We hear a lot of... um, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. It's like, at at this point of his career, nobody wanted to hear Bob Dylan. (laughs) But there he was. Well, Bob
2: Dylan sounds like Bob Dylan. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) never figure that out it was the 60s a lot of acid was being tripped (laughs) but yeah
2: a lot of great performers and even ray charles was part of the extended choruses yeah but uh for the single hit uh even that was kind of cut out but you know i could i could say for like ray charles yeah let's hear more of him
0: yeah oh yeah Love, love ray charles yeah so all right so yeah that that was number nine mick jagger and tina turner number eight Hollow Notes and the Temptations performing together.
2: That was quite the event.
0: The only reason I included this here is just because i'm I'm a big hollow Notes fan, I always have been, and the temptations are were an iconic sixties Motown group yeah, and uh this was kind of a comeback in a way for them as they did an album uh live at the Apollo together. It was more of an EP. I think there were probably six songs on it okay but so it was it was really cool seeing seeing them perform together, so you know, nothing huge no controversy there, Hollow & again, they're the biggest selling duo of all time, yeah. along with one of the biggest selling acts
2: Looking back on their hits, the ones that they performed that night, Out of Touch and Man Eater, uh-huh. I, do, I don't think either of those stand out as among their biggest yeah. hits, but it was their hits at the time.
0: Yeah, Out of Touch was from, I think it was, uh, I want to say the Big Bam Boom album that song was popular at that time Maneater was probably a couple years old at that yes. time. Yes, I believe so. And so, so I, I again, you're getting some of these bands that are kind of like between albums. Hollow Notes and Temptations, great moment.
2: Um, there is uh, one thing that I want to say. I thought it was the audience response to the Hollow Notes performance mm-hmm. increased with the arrival of Eddie Kendricks and then David Ruffin. Yeah, and David Ruffin, and when they performed, it. It um, I think what it did is it hit another part of the audience. Yeah, and started raising them up. And I gotta say, it was a really incredible scene to see them do the the Temptations lineup. Yes, they were uh, they were
0: doing the little dance moves, the choreography. Uh, yes.
2: So it was awesome to see some of you know, the predecessors there.
0: Yeah, and which you know I'm glad you brought that up. I think we should have seen more of of that. Kind of thing. I know we had, you know, some of the bands there were like the Beach Boys and things like that. How much cooler could it have been if we had a little more, a little more rub there? You know, sort of like, uh, like American Idol will do towards the end of the contest. Oh yeah, they'll yeah. have like, you know, some of these these bands will come up and sing. Remember when Adam Lambert was on there, uh, and Queen came out and played with him? Now, how cool would it be? If uh, you know, you can have more of the Temptations, Hall and Oates kind of thing. Yeah. So say that say that you had Neil Young come out with Tom Petty, yeah, you, see that. <laughs> the, you know, stuff like that, that. I think that they had some opportunities. I, I think that if uh, they had to do it over again, I think they would maybe do a little bit more of that kind of stuff.
2: I think that because of the quick planning that had to be gone into Live Aid, that a lot of that a lot of bands were just locked out because they couldn't. They were either in a recording project or they were uh, on on tour. Right. And so Live Aid came, which I think that a lot of them, once they knew how big the audience would be, would have loved to have been in it. But I know that I hear stories that they got locked out.
0: Yeah. So I'm having fun. You having fun? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Awesome. That brings us now to, I believe, number, number seven. seven. At the time of Tim and I, deciding what we're going to talk about on the show, I I just shot him a a list of 10 moments for us that really stuck out of Live Aid. And he responded back. He's like, those are very similar. Like, we're almost on the same page. He said, you should have mentioned The Who. Oh, how did I forget that? So that's how come The Who bumped into number 10 because I'd simply forgot about him before. But this next one, this number 7 that we're going to be talking about here... Uh, I did not realize at the time, but the Cars are Tim's all-time favorite band. You always
2: knew to wear it well, and you look so fancy I can tell.
1: And I don't mind you hanging out, I'm talking in your sleep.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely, uh, I'd say for, for, for modern music, The
0: Cars is. That is great. Um, when I first, like, I had heard of The Cars as a teenager, probably when I was 14-ish, 13, 14, had heard of The Cars. I knew the song Cars by Gary Newman. I saw there was a band called The Cars, and in my young 13, 14 year fourteen-year-old mind. Oh, they're ripping off the Gary Newman song, not knowing that they were a band before this song was a thing. I'm, Again, I didn't know anything. I was young.
2: I made the connection too. Did
0: you? Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So I had heard of them and can always wanted to hear them. Uh, I'm listening to Top Forty radio. I wouldn't listen to any of the rock stations, so I had no idea who they were. And uh, do you remember the TV show Fridays? Yes. Yeah. So Fridays. In case you don't know. Was uh, ABC's answer to Saturday Night Live? It was actually on, guess what, Friday Friday, nights, and I thought it was funnier, it was edgier, um, it was more impromptu comedy and kind of irreverent, but a ton of fun. And the Cars performed Touch and Go on Fridays, and I went out the very next day and bought the forty-five. I couldn't wait to go get that single. And then and then I'm talking to a girl at school and she's like, "Oh, I love the Cars." She showed, she let me borrow the Candio album. And I'm like, oh, "Where have these guys been my whole life?" You so so that's my first exposure to the Cars.
2: And I think you are definitely talking An 80s thing. Yeah. We celebrated that we yeah, you hear the song, you go to the record store and get the 45. You listen to the album, you sit down and listen to the album. Uh, that, that that was our thing. The first time I heard the cars was I heard the intro. I, I, I guess that's just what I needed. The song borrowed the intro from the song Yummy Yummy. So I thought that I was hearing on the rock station this old, corny tune, and then it turned into the the car's tune, and I was blown away. I was like, that is so bold. That's so arrogant. i got to hear the rest. Oh, that would be well, excellent. By the
0: way, in case you guys, we'll talk about it a little bit more towards the end, but uh, Tim actually composed the music for our intro this week. Pretty cool, huh? I hope it went well. <laughs> it did for me. I don't care about you know, these people <laughs> think.
2: Of course, when we're talking about, I guess uh, uh, we are talking about a late nineteen seventies release.
0: Yes, but it—it it was it, one thing that I loved about them. They had this futuristic, super cool. Like you felt like you were—you were cooler listening to the card. All right, this band gets me.
2: Yes, <laughs> and that's because they did stand alone.
0: Yeah, their style
2: was the card. Nothing like them. And you actually, if you go and get the anthology CD,
0: which I have,
2: you get it all and yes. you get the whole course. I think that what um, Door to Door, which was their, the worst of the albums, I loved.
0: I loved it too. Very underappreciated. Yes. Uh, Leave Heart- or Stay is one of my favorite harass yes. songs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes.
2: Well, you know, that Heartbeat City was their most innovative. Yes. Also, most technologically challenging. Which is
0: technologically is a hard word to say.
2: Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I just tripped right over (laughs) it. Forgive that mouth of mine. It also made them hard to do the concerts. So uh, at Live Aid, I think they got to do their... um, They they got to do several... uh, I think they they basically covered the Cars debut album's hits as well as the Heartbeat City hit. And they actually did the Heartbeat City title. Which
0: surprised me at the time because... Well, I'm looking at the the Live Aid uh, CD box set that was released, and Just What I Needed and Heartbeat City are the two songs that are on here. And Heartbeat City is another one of my favorite car songs. It's such a cool, moody song. It was originally called Jackie. They decided to change the name Heartbeat City. Which sounds like that fits. Yeah, yeah, for the the word. And the name Jackie's in there. One
2: of the things (laughs) I loved about the performance before Ben or... Uh, perform Drive. Mm-hmm. The Between the songs, um, the drummer started to play the drums as if you're watching a fireworks show. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the popping and everything. Yeah. And then there was like the a release of, of a kind of a steam sound. It, it must have been coming from the synths. And then all of a sudden goes right into the, uh, Drive. And the audience reaction was just powerful. You could tell that Drive already had touched uh, the, the fans yeah and I think it's because it touched the fans off the radio mm-hmm. and uh, I think that was one of its uh, one of the, the, the biggest moments I think that was the performance of all of theirs that they performed
0: yeah I, I would agree it, it's kind of cool when you're seeing a band live and they mix up what you' you've become very familiar with. I was watching. Uh, if any of you guys happen to have caught this this week on uh, ESPN, they played an Eagles concert on ESPN huh. with Vince Gill and uh, Deacon Fry. You know, oh, okay. The, the newer version of the Eagles. For one, it was phenomenal. But uh, one thing that I've noticed, and I've having seen the Eagles are my all-time favorite band. Having seen them live once and seeing a couple concert DVDs. When they do Hotel California, there is an intro with, like, trumpets and things. Yes. I've and, seen it and a it's, lot. It's like oh, you're, wow. And, and, if, and if you don't know that's coming, and if you're hearing that for the first time, you're like, okay, there's these trumpets. And then they go into the song.
2: It is amazing with that trumpet oh, intro. Oh, my
0: gosh. And then Journey does a thing um, with Love and Touch and Squeezing, which is a longer guitar intro. And then that famous nice. rhythm and beat and intro that we all know. So the cars doing that with the synth and the, the fireworks, drums leading into drive. I mean, as a fan, I I marked out. Oh my goodness! You know, you you know, you're cool. You lose your cool when you see stuff oh, like yeah, that. Go, yeah. Oh my goodness! So, I think
2: it was a great way to draw them into drive. I think that it was grabbing their attention because everyone's like, what what is this? What are they
0: playing? Is this a new song? And
2: then. Drive hits, and I think that it was such a perfect way to grab them that that's why they got that response.
0: Oh yeah, I I would agree, and again, see, and here, and this one of the reasons I put this on here. Had I known they were your your favorite band, I would have put them on there just for that reason, <laughs> but because they again, they're one of my favorites. One of the things, as as a big fan of music. Is I I liked back in those days Being introduced to new bands So like earlier in the show We're seeing like um, um, Nick Kershaw Who I had only heard of But seen for the first time At Live Aid Style Council uh, Status Quo Even though I didn't really feel Status Quo too too much Style Council I kind of liked So I'm enjoying seeing Some of these bands for the first time so, again, I try to look through the lens of somebody else seeing these bands for the first time. And over in England, like, the cars never really, they never really did anything. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Drive was probably their drive and I think driving just what I needed, or their two biggest, or maybe it was yes. my best friend's girl. Uh, it was th- those, like, maybe hit top 15? Yeah, ish, but was, nothing else charted. They're seeing the Cars, which we had a whole conversation on this last week or the week before, with me and Kevin. We were talking about the one-hit wonders. We were talking about how how did the Cars not hit bigger in England? They had that new wave sound. They had the, you know the cool uh, '50s type guitars. Like they 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 just had that that complete sound. How in the world did they not? Is is it is it radio programmers? Is it the is it the the record labels? Why weren't those guys any bigger? So I'm watching Live Aid and thinking, okay, I'm in England, I'm seeing these guys for the first time. What do I think? And I'm blown away, <laughs> of course, because I loved them anyway. But here I was, I had this this book out here. It was a fan book uh, of Live Aid. It's uh, it's a lot of pictures and things like that. And there's you know some articles and talks about the bands and what time they came on and things like that. I remember getting this book at Read More Bookstore in Grove City uh, the day it came out. Oh. I, I knew it was coming out, so I bought it, and you know I still have it to this day. But one of the things that cracked me up is they called the cars. A heavy metal band from America.
2: Yes, they did.
0: I'm like, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, they The were, Cars. <laughs> they even adopted that. <laughs> of these that. things just don't belong here. But for uh, all intents and purposes right now, uh, The Cars were number seven.
1: Number six.
0: And our number six moment from Live Aid for us is uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Which is different for me, and, and as it was for Tim, for me it was again one of these obvious, definite American bands yes. that some Brits are being exposed to for the first time. And and one thing I have found, um, I, I think there there may have been a little bit of a biased prejudice against the the American artists because like Michael Jackson, huge you know around the world. But a, a lot of people, uh, a, a lot of the Brits just really took a lot of pride in the oh. British invasion and then the second British invasion in the early 80s. And seeing these American bands on the telly for the first time, I think, would have been uh, a little shocking for some of them to actually know, hey, there are some, these American bands that, that you know, they, they start looking into them and say, hey, these guys have sold millions of records, and uh, Tom Petty to come out singing American Girl. That, that was the in the face.
2: Yes. they. Uh, I think that he did that because he was like, okay, go home, Wimberly. We got it now.
0: Yeah, yeah the, the big boys are here now. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah.
2: I think that's exactly why American Girl was pulled in at the last minute.
0: So uh, you said there was a little bit of controversy
2: here. Yes, during the early part of his performance, the camera was uh, got the chance to pick him up uh Giving the bird to someone who was off stage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in true Tom Petty fashion. Yeah. So that's great. I just, Tom Petty, rest in peace. Uh, I always uh, admired him, loved the music. Refugee was also sung that day. Again, very, these are blatant American sounds here. Yes. There is, There is. the influences are blues and American rock and roll here. There are no. There are no synthesizers here. Well, there there could be, but, like, in the background, like, they weren't the main instrument. Right. Uh, not for Tom like, Petty. Like, yeah, these true. were no Pet Shop Boys. Yes. <laughs> this was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And, you know, not. I don't have a ton to say about them other than it was just memorable to see them in that.
2: Well, I, I, I like what you said about the grit because that tom petty was a great representative for the reb, for the rebel <laughs> another word i'm having problems with for the rebellion of uh, of of american rock and roll music mm-hmm. and um and uh, and i think that his band performing to kick off the solo american now perform, uh show mm-hmm. was was just a perfect flavor of that american rock
0: yeah yep agreed and, again, uh, they're one of these these bands that uh, we've always adored uh, being able to, to finally show off. Yeah. So, that was good stuff. My so, favorite song, uh, Refugee. Yes. All right. Um, and that that does it for our um, for the, the bottom five, 10 through 6. So, uh, we're going to break uh, here for a brief timeout, and then we'll be back with our top five. Thank you for listening to Living in the 80s. We want to take this opportunity to thank all of those that helped make this possible. First and foremost, we want to thank Spotify for Podcasters for providing this platform, as well as Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and about a dozen others. We also want to give a special thank you to Star1079.com and Roundtown Radio where you can hear this podcast weekly. Also, be sure to check us out in our Facebook page, Living in the 80s. Most of all, we want to thank you for listening.
1: Shall we play a game?
2: Hi, I'm Joel McLaughlin, the most excellent host of Living in the Retro Arcade.
0: If you're into video games from the 70s to current day, this is the show for you. We'll talk about technical aspects of the games as well as memories, the best that we can remember them. That's Living in the Retro Arcade, available on all popular podcast platforms. Welcome back to Living in the 80s and for joining us on this encore Episode talking all about July 13th, 1985, which of course was Live Aid. Now we're going to go back to our show and we are going to be talking about our top five moments of Live Aid. Number, Number five. Number five on our list is Sting's solo performance and he sings with Phil Collins and he sings again with Dire our Straits. So Sting was a pretty big deal along with The Cars, another one of my favorite 80s bands has always been The Police
2: Oh, yes Absolutely, <laughs> uh, Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity is my favorites
0: My favorite, it's tough for me because it depends on my mood because sometimes Zenyatta Mandata is my favorite ah, nice. <laughs> so, so, but uh, yeah I could listen to The Police about any time and just know every word, listen to every every verse and chorus and just just be completely um, enthralled in fact Roxanne
2: that's where he started that's where he started
0: yeah. yes Sting starting off with Roxanne and I would have loved to have seen the police together that day yes like yeah. what can they get together I, I think I think I did hear somewhere where they tried to get them but they couldn't get along enough to, to do it which is very sad you know get together for a day I mean if if um, Led Zeppelin can do it, you know, you're know you not as big as Led Zeppelin. Get over <laughs> yourself and just do it, boys. Yes. But, yeah, Sting has always kind of been known, I don't want to say as being pretentious, but just really controlling of the situation that he's in.
2: Almost like the thinking man's rock. Yeah, you yeah.
0: If you you wouldn't know that he was college educated and he was a, a math teacher at one time. But, uh, yeah, he starts off with Roxanne.
2: Yeah, and then uh, followed by Driven to Tears. Now remember that, that this is being um, duetted with Phil Collins here. And um, then they go through uh, a song they had recorded together, Long, Long Way to Go. Which is on the
0: um, Face Value album. Yes. Which uh, I love. Uh, no, no
2: jacket required.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes.
2: And uh, then uh, lastly, um, Every Breath You Take, which is the uh, iconic piece.
0: Yes. So And it was a, ver- it was a slowed down version of it. Yes. so it was it was not the typical you know bass guitar driven version of every breath you take we're used to and it sounded nothing like every breath you take 86 <laughs> so it was a completely different uh, version and sting you know he's a he's a genius oh yeah and uh just hearing him just do his thing on there again he's one of the biggest draws there i mean if you could you know at that time you know if you could get sting to the show, um, oh, yeah. you've done something.
2: Now, you, this actually follows what Phil Collins had talked about, what he wanted to do at Live Aid. Mm-hmm. He says, I want to perform with the other bands. Yeah. And uh, and this was a good start. Plus, I think this was one of the only ways that he'd get to perform in both places.
0: Yes, exactly. And what you got to remember at this time is the No Jacket Required album was... I don't want to say for sure, but it was it could be or was right around the number one album in the U.S. at this time. So Phil was as big as Phil was going to get yes. at that time. And not only that, but he was producing lots of people. So he was doing lots of stuff. Like, everybody was loving Phil. He was acting. He was in that movie Buster. So he, Phil was everywhere. And, uh, well, well, we'll talk about him in a little bit. But um, uh, just s- s- keeping on staying. And he comes back out with Dire Straits, singing Money for Nothing. Yes. Which, that was the, like, you're talking about catching lightning in a bottle. Like, this was Dire Straits. Not They never really went away, but they were not superstars in the U.S., yes until I the brothers in arms album came out yes. and money for nothing was all over mtv all over the radio and then you hear sting on there he's guys things i want my mtv and uh and and singing the background vocals on that i mean that's phenomenal
2: and then you backed that up with the computer animated video which uh which kind of brought cgi into the mainstream
0: yeah and it, and if you look at that video now, it still looks really cool today, yeah. I think. But at the time, it was so groundbreaking. And um, it's nothing you expect out of Dire Straits. Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, Sultans of Swing, yes. uh, Skate Away. More like, their
2: flavor, more their traditional flavor. Yeah, like
0: we're not going to do anything that's going to, you know, intentionally be a hit. And they come out with this. Um, I was reading a a book entitled I Want My MTV. Um, It talks about the history of MTV. And one of the things they're talking about on there is how some bands refused to do videos and embrace where music was going. Like, they wanted nothing to do with it. But then you got bands like Dire Straits, like Tom Petty, like ZZ Top. These bands that traditionally were radio bands going you know if we want to continue to sell we got to start doing music videos and seeing Mark Knopfler doing these these really super cool videos and I mean think about it Mark Knopfler at that time I don't know, 35 40 years old balding is suddenly Who cool would have thought yeah, yeah let's put a headband on him and in the video make it neon Yes. So,
2: <laughs> not but, to mention the riff of "Money for Nothing." Oh my is gosh! Incredible. Yes,
0: it is. It is. So yeah. it, again, it's, it was a great moment for me to, you know, see Sting doing all this stuff. But you know, to it, it spawns off the Dire Straits and the whole thing with Phil. So honestly, it was just an incredible
2: performance. Three uh, artists together. If you can include Dire Straits as one of the artists.
0: All right, that was number five. Number four. So, sticking with the theme, <laughs> our uh, next one, our number four uh, moment that we thought would belong here would be uh, Phil Collins playing both London and Philadelphia the same day. Same day.
1: Good evening, Philadelphia. Good evening, America. Good evening, London, good evening, the world.
2: I was in England
0: this afternoon. Again, we talked before how he was all over the place. We're going to say the number one album. If you want to fact check us, go ahead. But I remember No Jacket Required. I know I called it Face Value before Mm it was a previous album. Uh, That was a huge album. And I remember personally wearing the cassette out. Talk about what it meant to you to see him doing both continents.
2: Well, Phil Collins was uh you know, he, he was uh quite on top at the time and just the same, even if he's gonna just perform a piano mm-hmm. was incredible and, and he performed in the air tonight both in London and then later I mean, yeah, both in London and later in Philadelphia. I can feel it
1: coming yet I, oh Lord. Well I've been waiting for the small
2: And even to to just hear him come to the pause where the drum would be, Mm -hmm. and uh, it it was intense. In fact, in um, in Philadelphia, when he got to that pause where the drum should be, you hear the audience going da dum da dum da dum. Yes, it was. It he 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 was everybody's favorite. I, I think he was at a point where it was like Phil could write nothing wrong.
0: No, he couldn't. Until well, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Yeah.
2: It also was a good boost for Concorde, I think. Yes, it's <laughs> as it took to get it, across.
0: So many shots, like him going to the to the airport, getting on the Concorde, and then flying over and landing. They made such a huge deal about, it, especially um I, again i was watching probably at this point more of the mtv feed because you know you've got the mtv vjs on there yeah who we were all you know we were kids we love those guys they were like our friends so yeah um i would say phil doing both continents is probably good. good for number three yeah number three You would think that a Led Zeppelin reunion would be the biggest event of this day. I would say going into the day, that is probably what they had anticipated. We've got a couple things above it. But um, let's talk about Led Zeppelin. So in, in case if you're listening to this and you're not totally familiar with who Led Zeppelin was, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you know a few songs. You, you're not you may not know their place in rock history in the 70s they were the biggest hard rock band they were an alternative to the 70s pop and disco songs at the time which aren't all bad we're not slamming that music at all but the hard rock alternative to that um, was like Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath um, those you know those harder bands Aerosmith um, Boston I would put in that category but they were kind of more on the commercial side but uh, if if you were a rock fan in the 70s you probably had a lot of Led Zeppelin music playing either on your radio and your tape deck wherever you went so in uh, October of 1980 um, John Bonham the uh, drummer for Led Zeppelin had passed away and um, instead of and and they were on tour or, I'm sorry they were getting ready for a North American tour and they had toyed around with ID with the idea of getting another drummer now it's Led Zeppelin so they're gonna pick whoever they want um, they decided uh, just to disband the group versus going on so um, December 4th, 1980, they had a press conference and said, we are you know, no longer, our hearts are too heavy, we're, we're breaking up. Fast forward to 1985. Um, people have had been wanting Le- a Led Zeppelin reunion forever. Now, during this time, John Paul Jones, the bass player, kind of went off into obscurity. Maybe he did some session work, uh, nothing of, of notoriety, but you've got Jimmy Page who had, you know, he is uh, considered one of the greatest rock guitarists of all time. Uh, You've got him, who I know he did the thing with The Firm. He did some other stuff with some people. Uh, He did, uh, well, later on he did some things with David Coverdale. But um, Robert Plant did the Honey Drippers, and he did some solo stuff, of course. And so now we are at this time, and Bob Geldof gets the coup of all coups, he's getting Led Zeppelin back together, and this huge event—enough
2: to make the whole event
0: exactly like oh. this is worth tuning in for. I remember not necessarily being a Led Zeppelin fan because, like, I never listened to that kind of music earlier. Like, I didn't get into like Led Zeppelin and stuff until later, but I remember like being very familiar with who they were yeah. and Robert Plant. You know, doing the solo stuff, which I knew very well, and then Jimmy Page doing the firm, which I loved him and Paul Rogers from Bad Company getting together doing the firm. So, like, I I wanted to see this, and it was to me, it was a great performance. But what happened? Well, um, also
2: to answer your question about John Paul Jones, he actually started doing behind the scenes scoring and composition. Okay. Um, when they when they came to perform. Um, the lineup was they were going to have uh, Paul Martinez doing bass. And they had two drummers, which uh, almost looks like a sync problem right off the bat. Phil right. Collins and uh, and Tony Thompson. Uh, when they performed, the um, uh, it, it depends on who you're talking to. Phil Collins would later write that it seemed like Robert Plant was on his game. Mm-hmm. that night and um, and he complained that um, Jimmy Page was coming up and telling him he's knitting on the drums he's doing fancy play that's throwing him off <laughs> and he also um, took the liberty to uh, pick on Tony Thompson who said Tony Thompson was just basically taking a bold lead on the drums and uh, accused Tony Thompson of trying to be the next choice for the Led Zeppelin drummer mm. but the um, the performance, even when you watched it, you can see Jimmy Page actually step back to the drums.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: can see Robert Plant looking back. It is not going with the flow that they want. Now, I myself will say that John Bonham was so in sync that he would actually even roll with the guitar riffs.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and when you had that great drummer that was, that was behind you, and you know, no I know Phil Collins played drums. I know Tony Thompson. He also did stuff for the power station. But when you're backing up with someone like John Bonham's place, you um I think that the, the sinking problem, mm-hmm. uh, as Phil Collins said, if I knew they were gonna have two drummers, I would have dropped out immediately. Yeah. And like, um, why would
0: they have needed two drummers?
2: I think that Tony Thompson probably had it first. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that when uh, Phil Collins came in and he wanted to go and perform, and because he was such a big name, I think they uh, they they didn't have the heart to take out Tony Thompson. Or maybe Tony Thompson wasn't going to take himself out. Yeah. And so I think that they got to uh, perform together. But honestly, two drummers, it I I can only sound, uh, imagine it's going to sound like mud.
0: You know what? i want to i I to blame Bob Geldof. He probably sold the idea to everybody. Oh, this would be a great if we did this and that and had all you guys together. Like in his mind, maybe it was going to play out well. Well, so
2: after, just afterwards, when they did a backstage mm-hmm. and you had Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, and they were just, they were like, what? No, Phil messed up. And they <laughs> called him by name. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, for, because I think that Robert Plant and Jimmy Page they were going to have their that moment if they if they were going to come back on the stage this was supposed to you know be the heavy impact yeah. and i think because of the the shock of just what had happened i think that's why they they made the call keep it off the dvd
0: yeah exactly i enjoyed phil collins up there but uh, I, apparently the the artists themselves weren't, weren't quite happy with it yeah. so which maybe is why we don't consider that number 1
2: are you saying that artists have egos? <laughs> I,
0: I, I hear they do. Huh, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, yeah, that was our, our number three moment. Dump, 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 number dump, two. That brings us to number two, which is going to the, be the performance of U2. Holly came from Miami FLA Which hiked all the way across the USA
1: the real satellite coming down. Pretty soon she was in London town. At the Wembley Stadium, and all the people went. Like, Thank you. God bless you.
0: I was a fan of you two. they were U2 before they were this otherworldly band that seemed to take over everything back in the early days of MTV I remember seeing the video to Gloria the first U2 song that I had heard, I'd, I'd never even heard of them until MTV and then they were playing New Year's Day and then they would play I Will Follow and Two Hearts Beat is One I'm like, I love this band and then they did pride in the Name of Love off of the Unforgettable Fire album, yeah, great which song. kind of like you can feel it kind of bubbling like this is a this is the next big band and so when Live Aid came along, you two had one of the most iconic moments of the entire day, and um. If if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, during uh, the performance of "Bad," like they were supposed to do three songs, but the song "Bad" became like a 13-minute song. Yeah. <laughs> they kept you know, uh, Bono was ad-libbing. They were uh, the Edge was going into guitar solos, and the fans were just going nuts. Yes, like they got probably the second biggest crowd reaction of the day, which if you haven't figured out what number one is yet, spoiler, we're not going to tell you, but you probably know. Anyway.
2: I'd say YouTube was also the first to get the big reaction.
0: Yes, yeah. I think they set the table for the number one. But for me, this was the the greatest moment. So Bono, uh, from the stage, sees one girl in the crowd, who's kind of getting... Uh, she, people are trying to rush towards the stage like, they were so into the performance that this one girl was kind of getting kind of smashed so he reached that down and, and he jumps over the railing like things you're not supposed to do as an artist and they, uh, they had security grab this girl and the song slows way down and Bono is dancing with this girl and that scene is forever etched in my mind. It's one of the great. Like I'm just watching this, going, oh, "This is my new favorite band." <laughs> and just just seeing that and experiencing that, and and it's another thing that made Adam Ant mad, because apparently <laughs> that you two went over, which is another reason why he was bumped only one song. Oh, <laughs> so that that's kind of the story. So he he kind of blames Bono for that, uh, Adam. I love you, man. But your music at that point was not was not going anywhere. <laughs> so maybe they saved you. Who knows? But uh, that that moment uh, to me was just epic.
2: You know, YouTube first came down to the lower level with the cameras, mm-hmm. and then he uh, took a longer drop to mm-hmm. get down there. And the thing was, uh, yeah, he was just going to break those rules mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, basically be a hero for that. A young woman, and uh, and I think, especially when you consider that last long jump that he had to make down, and then go to the girl. This was the hero shot, mm-hmm. and uh, and and with all the things that Bono uh, Bono, excuse me,
0: please forgive me. Oh, hey, I think it happens all the time <laughs>
2: that Bono has done, um, since uh, mm-hmm. and, and for the for the for the good of things, I think that you. Um, I think that you are seeing a great symbolization mm-hmm. of of the good things that this person's gonna end up doing.
0: Oh yeah. You you saw heart, you saw compassion. I know he's never been shy talking about his faith. Well he's never been shy talking about anything. Um and I know he gets a lot of uh, critics like, Oh, he's so self righteous and whatever, whatever. The dude has donated millions and millions of dollars of his own money towards famine relief towards injustices and poverty and you know he, he's, he's uh, again uber rich. He's you know uh, made a lot of money, but he's also given a lot of money away too. yeah so don't fault the guy for having money uh, but you know would if you were in the same position and you were you know, making that kind of money would you, would you give away you know over half of what you've made? I think most people would not. I think I would have to, not that I'm being self-righteous, but you've got all that money. How much do you need? Yeah, I think I, I
2: think I follow with you exactly, <laughs> yep. exactly on that. I think that is one of U2's biggest moments, and if I, I I'll just jump to the future, to say my other big moment for U2 mm-hmm. was when they performed and they had the names of the 9-11 victims yes. just coming up the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I That is the one thing about U2 they can... Set the emotion, they can set the message, yes. And uh, and then I think just for kicks, I think you two knew that they had the audience, mm-hmm. so the so he starts to uh sing through the phrases of uh, goodbye, Ruby Tuesday, sympathy mm-hmm. for the devil, mm-hmm. and then finally uh, Lou Reed's walk on the wild side. I mean, why not use what you got? I'm sure Adam Ant's back there just pressing his fist to his hand, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have seen <sing> Ant rap. <laughs> So, sorry Adam again. We we don't mean to pick on you, but, you know. But uh yeah, to me that was my favorite moment of the day. Uh, again, being the fan seeing it live that was monumental for me. But but uh but it's not number 1. Number 1. Well, I think he kind of knew it was coming. Uh, our number 1 uh event, a uh, number 1 moment from Live Aid was the performance by Queen.
1: All we hear is radio gaga, radio boo radio gaga. All we hear is radio gaga, radio boo
0: radio gaga. It completely took over the show. Yes. Uh, I remember seeing this live again, uh, being a fan of Queen, uh, they were not they were never my favorite band, but I remember when The Game came out. Oh, yeah. And Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Another One Bites the Dust came out, and that's probably like the peak of Queen for me. I remember earlier hearing like we were Rocky and We Are the Champions, and I knew Bohemian Rhapsody. So I, I'm hearing, to me, Queen had kind of already passed their prime. And For all intents and purposes, as far as record sales and things, they had. But when they they came out, I I didn't realize how big they were in England. Uh, the, The fans, as crazed as they were for U2, was up about another notch when Queen came out. Yes. And... I I have this visual in my mind of uh, Radio Gaga and uh, Gaga, 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 Gaga. Radio Gaga. I'm a baby. (laughs) So, and the hands clapping, the people in the crowd. And it's just, he starts them because they're not clapping before that. He starts them and almost instantly, everybody starts clapping along. And I, I know my friend Jerry Andrews is probably the biggest Queen fan I know. Um, I, I he's probably smiling right now, wanting to kill me if I didn't make this this, this number <laughs> yes. one, but I mean it on, honestly is. I mean, they made the uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody movie last year, and yes. they did like a frame for frame reproduction oh,
2: that's but, so tightly.
0: Yeah, so talk to us uh, your thoughts when you saw Queen that day and uh,
2: I know the performance so well that when I watched the movie. I was looking for the, the flaws. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, and I was the first to say, "Hey, wait, where's crazy little Thank God Love?" Fortunately, it's in the extended. I thought, I thought, actually, for homage, I thought it was a brilliant portrayal. Yes. Um, and it gave honestly Freddie Mercury more more of the appreciation that I think that performer deserves. Oh yeah. He um he revolutionized where uh, you could take music, right? Uh, in the rock era.
0: On a performance level, I mean, of course, he's strong vocally, but as a performer, as a leading, as a lead lead singer of, of uh, what's I don't want the word I'm looking for is um, uh, that commanding presence that a that I think he that's the have. word yes
2: uh, mm-hmm. which he did and uh, and the artist from off stage was noticing it and they're like no, you got to understand it that, that at this time Queen was under some controversy mm-hmm. Radio Gaga. Um, brought up some controversy uh, um, uh, uh, about um, Freddie Mercury and uh, also the fact that the band had uh, performed uh, 12 concerts um, in South Africa, mm-hmm. which uh, currently was being banned because of the apartheid. Correct. People weren't expecting them to have a, a, a good reaction, mm-hmm. but they saw what how he was controlling the audience, and they would say, hey, Queen's still in the show. And um I think
0: Adamant was mad about that too. <laughs> I, probably.
2: Probably just sitting around. He's like, Oh, there's another reason they hate this thing. Yes. And uh the what made it so iconic was it was almost like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, maybe he didn't know, but it was going to be some of the last time that he could address himself with pure health yeah. to the audience. Oh yes. And uh one of the moments that I think touched people most was during a we are the champions Mm -hmm. when he took that i thank you all and directed it directly to the audience yes i think that that this made this the iconic performance of queen
0: again you want to see these performers at their prime and as we talked about with led zeppelin that wasn't their finest hour duran duran not their finest hour queen i think I, i never saw them live but I've seen video of concerts and things like that. This this iconic performance was them at the peak of their powers. Like, this yes. was this band, this snapshot of them at their absolute best. Freddie, like you said, his health would decline. He passed away of AIDS. Was it 1986?
2: Somewhere around there.
0: Yeah. You know, we didn't get to see what he would become later. We didn't get to see... You know what music he had left in him and what he could have maybe passed on to it was 1991 that he passed away um we didn't get to see him doing some collaborations with other artists like say for example how cool would it have been to hear him sing in radio gaga with lady gaga
2: Oh yeah, you know,
0: yes. which that's how she she took her name is from that song that she grew up listening to. For real, yes, okay. things like that, and it's all these artists later that that credit him. Like you said, he kind of helped change the way people saw lead singers, not as just these divas or whatever, but they can add something. Like I, I put him up there again, in preference. I, I put David Lee Roth in that category i put steve perry in that category but i think uh, I, well i put bono up there i put sting up there like there's sort of like a a group of guys that kind of set themselves apart uh, i would probably put freddie above all of them as a showman that you know he's he is i would say he's in a class all by himself or or maybe he's in the classroom but he's the head of the class <laughs> That about does it for our recap of Live Aid. I wanted to thank, once again, Tim Clue for joining me. Did we cover everything on Live Aid? Absolutely not. Many performances that were really, really good. I would challenge you to get on YouTube or something. Just check out some of the performances and some of the highlights of the day. It was truly a great day and music and, like we said earlier, one of the most remembered days of the 1980s. Next week, we will be back talking about the year 1987. Matt, Mike, and Kevin will be along, and we should have a great discussion. We're going to leave now with a band we only touched on a little bit earlier. During Live Aid, there were other concerts going on at the same time, and like I mentioned before, one of my favorite bands of the decade is In Excess and from Australia they did a performance and had a video feed via satellite that we all got to see and this was right after this single was released. So in closing this is In Excess with What You Need from Live Aid July 13th 1985. Thanks take care and God bless. Watch me give it?
1: Just realized today is the best day in my life